This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. One of my favorite heartfelt subjects today, um, people with disabilities and promoting their rights. And we have somebody today who's very involved with it, philanthropist Jay Ruderman, who is the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation. They do a lot of things, but they concentrate. One of their big issues is the inclusion of people with disabilities, especially in Hollywood. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having me. Yeah. it's. Um, how did you get involved? I mean, uh, you, were, you were in politics, you were a lawyer, you were an attorney, and how did this come along? So the Family Foundation was started about a couple decades ago, and initially, um, I mean, I've always been involved in social justice, you know, in politics and law, and my dad came to me at one point and said, you know, we're going to start a foundation as a family. Uh, we've been fortunate um, to acquire some wealth, and I'd like you to take it over. And initially I said, Dad, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I looked at philanthropy as very passive, uh, providing money to let someone else do, you know, the real work. And so I turned him down, and I continued on my path in, in you know, working for APAC. And then at a certain point, I said, listen, maybe I can take this philanthropy and make it more activist and actually use it as a platform to create real change. And so that, that was 2008. Yeah, it must be great when uh, you meet people and you don't really need their money. Right, right. <laughs> but why, why disabilities, Jay? What is it? Uh... So our first major um, grant was with another family. There was a $45 million initiative to improve the Jewish education in Boston. And the other family was very specific. They wanted to support the largest Orthodox, conservative, and informed day schools. And we were sort of left with a commitment, but we didn't know what, what to do. So we sat down with the Federation and we said, one of the things that's not being addressed in Boston is the education of children with disabilities. They didn't have an avenue to participate in Jewish day schools. And we started that, and we, you know, that led to, when I came on board, really focusing and going narrow and deep on this issue. And I lived in Israel, and we started a major partnership between the Joint and, and, and the Israeli government to promote inclusion of people with disabilities. And to me, it's a civil rights issue. So we've just gotten deeper and deeper, and in addition to our funding, which has gone international at this point, uh, we do a tremendous amount of advocacy around the issue. You know, there's the, the theory and then there's the practice, and in theory, so many of us will say, well, yes, I feel bad for somebody with Down syndrome or any other kind of disability, but then one day I spent a couple of hours with a couple madly in love with each other and they both had Down syndrome and it moved me to no end, Jay. It was like I still can't get it out of my heart and my mind and my soul. It's been two years and you really have to live the issue to really understand um, how deep it is and, and how many the possibilities are because there's a taboo with people with disabilities and often the whole idea of them, you know, marrying is or having a job and being integrated is something that um, we're so far from that, are we not? So I think we have to look at disability as part of humanity. Uh, you know, disability is a very large community. In fact, it's the largest community in the world. Uh, broadly defined, the, United, the UN, um, the Department of Labor defines people with disabilities as 20% of our population. That's one out of five, every five people. And routinely... 50 million plus. Right. And you've mentioned, you know, stigma. I mean, the history of people with disabilities has been institutionalization, 
segregation, um, a charitable approach to them, instead of saying, you know, this is part of humanity, uh, people with disabilities deserve to live in our community, uh, work in our community, worship in our community, be visible and not hidden away. And, and we're just emerging right now uh, in the past, I would say, decade from segregation into inclusion. And um, I see tremendous gains um, everywhere, in Israel, in the United States, around the world. I think that every single family is connected to someone with a disability. So it's not like a, a, a small minority group that none of us you know, are connected to. It's part of our lives. You know, there's images that stay in your minds forever. One of them is I was driving. I think I was driving to Vegas, and I was in, in the desert, and I needed to get gas, and I stopped at a gas station. You couldn't see for miles anywhere. It's just a, a gas station in the middle of nowhere, and I saw an on-ramp for wheelchair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, what a great country. Right. <laughs> you know? And I figured some lawyer somewhere, you know, decided that there's a law somewhere that says they needed to have an on uh, a ramp for, for wheelchair. And you and I were talking about that earlier, that th there's the law, and then there's, you know, making sure the law gets executed. And when did that start? You said first President Bush? So, um, Yes, George H.W. Uh, Bush um, signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, Speak about that for a minute. And that, that is sort of the landmark civil rights legislation for people with disabilities that allow accommodations for people with disabilities to participate in life, to live in our community, to work in, in our businesses. I think that the problem is there's one thing to have a law I experienced this in Israel a lot. You know, there's one thing to have a law, and there's, there's another thing for the law to be enforced. Right, but it's a toolkit for a great activist, right. correct? Right. I mean, that's probably how you see it, right? Your I, toolkit. I see it as important, especially when we um, become very involved with the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and we talk about um, not only casting but auditioning actors with disabilities. And I'm like, you know, do you understand that there's the Americans with Disabilities Act there out there? And, you know, you have to make auditions accessible. Yes, yes. And and I think there's a fine line, too, where, I mean, in the Jewish tradition, it tells us not to settle for the letter of the law, that there's also the spirit of the law, you know, which takes us into ethics. So that casting director and that commercial director and that Hollywood producer has to appeal to sort of an ethical sense inside of him as opposed to just you know, following the letter of the law and ending up with an able-bodied person, you know, doing the role kind of thing. It, 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 aren't we asking people to just, you know, look into their souls a little bit more uh, well, in to this the, case? Well, to the extent that works, I'll tell you, anyone that I know who's a leader, whether it's in business or whether it's in the entertainment industry or uh, any facet of life who's a leader at including people with disabilities, have someone... <clears throat> excuse me, in their family with a disability. Mm. And that that's what motivates them. For example, Richard Marriott from the Marriott Corporation, one of the, the largest hotel chains in the world. The Marriott brothers had a brother with a disability, and that motivates them to hire people with disabilities. We need to move beyond that. And people in, who don't necessarily have that connection, they need to either feel pressure, um, 
and I could talk about the pressures that we've tried to bring on the industry in the entertainment industry, or they need to be the economic case. The numbers need to be shown to them, how large this community is and how much their buying power is. Right, and I think it feeds on itself because the more they do it, the more people with disabilities will become good actors and be encouraged to train to become good actors, and then it'll be just a good decision because that person is a good actor. Now, you criticize the movie, don't worry, he won't get far on foot, right? right. Because right. they used uh, Joaquin Phoenix in the role of a disabled man instead of an actor so with that's, disability. that's one of several movies that we criticized. And the reason we criticized it is to engender a conversation in Hollywood, to say, hey, listen, there's a community out there. You wouldn't think, like, for example, flying out here, I watched a movie on the plane called Cold Pursuit, which is a story of a drug battle between a white uh, drug gang and an American Indian drug gang. Now, I can, t I can guarantee you that every single actor who was playing an American Indian was an American Indian. But go back 30 years ago, and that wouldn't have been the case. Mm -hmm. You would have had a white actor painted as, as, as you know, to look like an American Indian, or you would have had an Hispanic actor playing an American Indian. So we've progressed. But with disability, it's still seen as great acting for someone who's able-bodied to sit mm -hmm. in a wheelchair or to look like they're an amputee. Right, and, right. Uh, Dustin Hoffman right. in uh, I mean, the, that movie. There's so many yeah. examples. Right, the last right. 30 years, half the men that have won the Best Actor Oscar have won for playing a disability. Wow. wow. So in order to change that, I mean, we've tried to bring pressure through criticism and getting articles. Um, and then we sort of switched. And now we are giving recognition to shows where where they have employed actors with disabilities. So there were four shows recently, two on Netflix, one on CBS and one on ABC that have hired actors with disabilities. And we'll continue to do that and build relationships with the industry in order to further this issue. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood, you know, <clears throat> I don't think there's anything more important. In terms of the optics and changing attitudes, you know, you look at uh, over the years, you mentioned the Cosby show earlier. Right. And um, so many of the attitudes are changing Hollywood. Now, the Tony Awards, mm -hmm. right, last week, uh, that was kind of a little bit of a breakthrough, right? Right. So was... Ali Stroker won um, a Tony for her performance in Oklahoma, and she's a great actress. And there's so many people like her out there. She's in a wheelchair? She is. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, it's an issue of opportunity. It's an issue of rights. You know, all we're asking the studios right now, and I've met with all the major studios, is to pledge to audition actors with disabilities. We're not even talking about casting at this point. Just give them the opportunity to audition. Because I'll tell you that uh, Edgar Wright um, was directed a film called Baby Driver. And in the film, uh, the father of the main character is someone who's deaf. And he tells the story about how he auditioned 100 guys, you know, to play a deaf character. And it wasn't until he met C.J. Jones, who's deaf, who said, listen, he's the most authentic to play this role because he's deaf. And I think that this authenticity, which we, which we demand as a society from, you know, we want to see African-American actors play African-American roles, Asian actors play Asian roles. Um, even transgender actors play transgender roles with disability. We're not yet there. But yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating dilemma, you know, Jay, because so often, you know, in the professional world of acting, they see it as an amazing challenge, almost an extreme case of becoming 
completely somebody else. Right. Like the uh, who played uh, Hawking? Uh, oh, it, um, Eddie Raymond. Right, and he wasn't disabled. Correct? Right. Yeah. Right. So it happens all the time, and and I don't want to be a fanatic and say every time you see a person with disability in a role it has to be played by a person with, with a disability because we're not there yet. But at least we have to provide opportunities. Give them a shot. And even like, you know, small roles, you know, um, a, a supporting actor, mm. you know, those people will then b become more famous, more well-known, um, have more of a commodity, and then they'll, the, the whole community will rise up. Give us a few examples of some of the meetings you've had in Hollywood. You don't have to name names, but tell us some of the reactions you've been getting. And so, if you want to so, name names, go ahead. Yeah, so generally, um, my experience in the industry uh, has been people want to do the right thing. Uh, I think it's an industry that cares. Certainly, they care about diversity. And they felt pressure from other communities. Remember the Oscars so white that, you know, there was not enough recognition for African-American directors and producers and, and actors. And they changed. And, and they started to, and that community has risen in Hollywood and become, became a powerful community. The Asian community, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, you know, the first major, you know, blockbuster film with, with an all-Asian cast. Uh, Black Panther, you know, was a breakthrough. So we haven't had that breakthrough with disability. Um, and I'm not even saying, you know, there, there needs to be a movie with all, you know, people with disabilities. But if one out of every five people has a disability, but yet they don't see themselves in popular entertainment, that, first of all, it's not even, it's not right, but it reinforces stigma. And we talked, you know, before about we live with extremely low unemployment in America. Our, our unemployment rate is under 4%, but yet people with disabilities, their unemployment rate is about 70%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that means you're not working you're not participating in society, you're hidden away, you're segregated, and entertainment and popular perception plays into that. It mm -hmm. allows that to happen. So the more that you see people and they, they become part of your life and you accept them, I mean, you and I saw it with the LBGTQ community, how you know people were in the closet and even you know famous actors didn't want you know to come out and, and it to be known that they were gay. And then all of a sudden, you know, a show like Will and Grace comes about, and it leads to dramatic change in the United States and around the world. So entertainment can really have a tremendous impact on creating change. And with people with disability, I think the mark of a great society is one that takes care of those who don't have the political power, who don't have the, the lobbying power of these, you know, big money lobbies and stuff. And when you think of 52 million people with disabilities and 70% of them being lonely on the couch of a parent or something, right. it's really tragic. And they don't have the power. I think one of the, one of the, I mean, I've written a lot about this and one of the, the disability community itself does not reach its potential because they tend to divide themselves according to disability. You'll have a group that focuses on autism or one you know, Down syndrome or blind or deaf. Whereas if they band together as one community where they face many of the same obstructions and obstacles, they'll be a much more powerful community. It's interesting because you're, what you're trying to do is really bringing them all together in a way because when you go to Hollywood, you're saying, we don't care whether you, you know, bring in for an audition, 
whether it's blind or deaf or mm -hmm. in a wheelchair or so forth. So you really go across the gamut. Right. So we've never, I've never defined disability. Um, you know, as long as you consider yourself disabled under the ADA, um, you know, because I think it's more powerful the bigger the community is. And that's why we've never um, identified with one particular disability. Now, uh, a whole other area that the, your foundation deals with is helping Israelis understand the American Jewish community. Right. Talk about that. So we have uh, an office in Israel, and our activities there are really focused on Israeli society. Um, you know, I used to work for APAC, and I met many members of Knesset and ministers, and I would talk about the American Jewish community and how influential it was to ensuring Israel's security. And I was met with either ignorance or um, maybe a lackadaisical attitude about, you know, why it's important. And so when we started to focus on this area, we did a few things. We started bringing missions of Knesset members from all different parties to the United States, to the Jewish community, to learn about the Jewish community. Um, journalists, we established the only academic program on the American Jewish community at the University of Haifa, at any Israeli university. And we established a caucus in the Knesset on this issue where Jewish leaders um, like Abe Foxman or Rabbi Rick Jacobs would come and speak um, to members of Knesset. So, How long um, ago was this? Uh, about um, six years ago. Mm, okay. And so now the Knesset has had a lot of turnover. So, you know, we've brought dozens of Knesset members. There's probably only about 11 of them left in the Knesset. And the Knesset just disbanded itself. So now we're going to have new elections in September. So it's a moving target. Um, but what we basically say, because we're not... We don't take any political sides, whether in Israel or in the United States. All we're saying is that... Get to know us. Outside of Israel, the largest Jewish community is in the United States. It's a powerful Jewish community. It has tremendous impact on the American government and how the American government acts towards Israel. And you don't have to respect everything about... You don't have to, you don't have to love everything about the American Jewish community, but at least treat them with respect. So when you have a minister speaks out and and denigrates reformed Jews, that's not helpful to the relationship. Yeah, it's destructive. Right. <laughs> I've written a lot about this. Right. I, I think so often we we just stick to stereotypes and and uh Well there's of, there's a lot know. of populism. We live in a in a in a time of nationalism and populism. Um in America, in Europe, uh in Israel populism often takes the effect of um, uh, castigating the other. And the other, when you say the term reformim in Israel, you're not saying you mean reform Jews, but, you, but, the, but the connotation in Hebrew is anti-religious. Mm -hmm. You're attacking Torah Judaism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, the, the reform movement in Israel is, is, is not a, it's a small movement. But here in the United States, the reform movement is the largest stream of Judaism. So, you know, if you're a minister in, in the Israeli government and you attack reform Jews because maybe it gets you points within your own party and more votes, it has an implication all the way across the ocean over here. And, you know, when I used to work for APAC, I guarantee you the board of APAC, the people that do the heavy lifting, you know, in front of Congress, many of them are reform Jews. 
And, you know, I'm just thinking, you, you want to attack the people who are ensuring the security of your country. I mean, you know, Israel does, cannot afford to not have America as an ally. I think there's also a misguided attitude where we try to change each other rather than exchange. Um, and there's a sense that we're projecting out. So in Israel, whatever they do is projected out, and this is the way the world should be, and, and vice versa. But you're talking about two completely different environments. For most Israelis that I know, you know, are hang around 90 to 100% Jews, mm -hmm. right? And here we're like 2% of the population, and it's a completely different type of Judaism right. that has evolved in America versus what has evolved uh, in Israel. And I think sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. We're like, we're upset mm -hmm. that they can't be like us and we can't be like them and so forth, you know? So I think, I think you have to look at, First of all, Jews, wherever you are, wherever you live in the world, if you're in Canada or Australia or France, wherever, you take on the characteristics of the country where you're in. Now, America, what's the greatest um, thing about America is individual rights. And the Jewish community tends to identify with individual rights. As a minority, we identify as, you know, with other minorities, and that's what brings Americans together, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Israel's a different country. Israel is more, it's had a socialist beginning. Uh, it's more of a tribal culture surrounded by enemies that come together, especially in times of war. So they're very different, you know, cultures. And, and the Israeli political system now is a center-right uh, leaning populace. Right. And what gets hidden in the whole picture is how much we still have so much in common. Right. And it seems that these, these differences that are genuine... Uh, are the ones that get all the promotion, which creates a sense of animosity and rejection and apathy, if you will, uh, between the two communities. And I like your approach because you're not really taking sides. You're kind of saying just get to know each other. Right. We don't have to love each other. You know, we just have to respect each other. I mean, listen, as, a, as an American, you know, we need Israel. Israel is the Jewish homeland um, a lot of what's happening in the Jewish world is centered in Israel. Uh, we need that connection. And that connection has been built thanks to you know, birthright. It used to be that 20% of American Jews had been to Israel. Now I think it's 80% of American Jews have been to Israel. Um, you know, on the Israeli end, you know, they don't have to love American Jews, but they have to understand that the American Jewish population is a large population that influences and helps their security. So it's an, for, for us, it's an issue of respect. Now, do you see yourself doing, um, as, a, as a next step, if you will, uh, the reverse, where you, know, you have Americans try to understand the uniqueness and the quirks of uh, Israeli society and how different they are from us and how maybe that's okay? I think there's many different groups that are doing that already. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, Birthright, you know, tries to do that by bringing, you know, young American Jews there and showing them, you know, Israel. Um, you know, I've always found philanthropy to be interesting where there's a vacuum, where mm -hmm. there's something that is not being done where you can come in and provide some leadership. And that's why we really focused in Israel on, on educating Israelis who will be in positions of influence. Yeah, if you can get uh, the chief rabbinate to uh, <laughs> to have opened their hearts for different streams of Judaism. Right. I've spoken to so many of them. 
over the it's, years. Uh, and it's just they, it's against their, I don't know. You know, it's tricky. You know, the, the Israel is a country, you know, we're used to as Americans having separation between religion and state. And in Israel, there is no separation between religion and state. They try, they try, but it's... Right. And when you mix politics and religion, it's complicated. Well, it's, that was my column last week. It, it ends up hurting the thing that matters most to them, which is their religion. Right. Uh, Rabbi Riskin once told me one of the worst thing that ever happened in terms of the image of Judaism in, in, in Israel was when the, the ultra-Orthodox decided not to go to the army, which started mm-hmm. with Ben-Gurion. Right. at the founding of the state. And there are these issues that I don't think they realize how it ends up backfiring on the religion. It's a chilul Hashem. Right. Well, I mean, I think you saw that with the fall of the the latest government in Israel in the Knesset. That was the main issue that Avigdor Lieberman put forward, you know, the, the for Haredim to serve uh, in the army. And that's what he's going to campaign on. And I, I think it's still... As an Israeli, it's still a major issue in, in Israel. And the great thinkers, the Benny Laos and, and, and the Riskins and the Hartmans in Israel, mm-hmm. will tell you it's a lot better for religion itself right. if you separate it out from, uh, from politics, from the ugly world of politics. Mm-hmm. Now, what about certain movements in America? Uh, for example, like the New Generation, there's this movement called If Not Now. Right. They're you know, uh, real controversial and outspoken and stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the educational process when you want to tell Israelis about America? Because right. that is something that really is gets divisive when right. Israelis get preached to by some little kid in Beverly Hills who's never had to run, had 15 seconds to run to a bomb shelter, right. preaching to them on what they should do for peace. Right. So when, when, when we bring groups over here, we try to expose them to the broadest spectrum of uh, what's happening in the American Jewish community. And that's part of what's going on right now. Um, you know, there are Jews that are very divided on the issue of uh, relations with the Palestinians. And, um, I mean, what we're seeing now in the Democratic Party, and most Jews identify with the Democratic Party, is the left wing of the party is becoming more and more critical of Israel. And I think that's influencing younger people and, you know, what's happening on college campuses and how Israel is becoming an issue. It's something that that they have to be aware of and they have to know that's happening here. Now, I may think that um, these movements have an oversimplification in terms of their view of, of the conflict. The conflict is, you know, having lived there and having served in the army, and having you know worked for APEC, the comp- conflict is extremely complex, and it's um, not as simple as click your fingers and end the occupation. No, it's and it's also not just on the Israelis. I mean, you know, the Israelis could show more. I mean, you've had a government now for for many years that you know I could say you know maybe could show more of an effort of trying to move the peace process forward. But also, the Palestinians haven't had the leadership, you know, w- that, that have said that they you know want to to make a deal. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I remember, you know, with, um, with Barack and, and Clinton, there was a pretty good deal on the table, mm-hmm. and they turned that down. Yeah, it's such a mess, Jay. We deal with it every day now. Uh, the issue of anti-Semitism, anti-Israelism, anti-Zionism mm-hmm. um, among the left and the right. It's, it's just, sometimes it just confuses us because we're trying to 
make sense of it because there's something a little bit non-American about this kind of movement. And I'm trying to get a sense of how bad is it. I think you have um, extreme polarization in this country. And, you know, the numbers of anti-Semitic incidents have risen. Certainly the number of violent anti-Semitic incidents have, have risen. Um, and I think you have two forms of anti-Semitism that, that, are, that are emerging. On the, on the right, you have the emboldening uh, of, of, of the uh, white nationalist movement. You know, with everything that happens on social media and the rhetoric out there, you know, when rhetoric is so toxic, once in a while, you know, a crazy person will jump up and, and, and take action. And, and, you know, I know that in our synagogues and our schools, the way that we protect them has changed. There's now armed guards. The, the police are outside the school. Um, it wasn't that way before, you know, so you have that. And then on the left, you have a criticism of Israel that borders on anti-Semitism and crosses the line often. So you're seeing anti-Semitism on the right and the left. Um, and whereas I think the majority of Americans like Israel, are in support of Israel, like Jews, understand the, co the contributions of Jews to this country, we're a tiny, tiny minority but we've really done tremendous things in the United States and continue to do tremendous things. Um, but I think it's a more difficult period. I think that, you know, the creation of the way that we communicate with each other through social media uh, and not directly face-to-face, -face, I think is impacting and, and helping anti-Semitism rise. Well, there's also biases involved because I know in the media business, I put anti-Semitism on a headline and my clicks double and triple. Right. And for fundraising purposes, alarmism sells. Mm -hmm. So true. Th there's built-in biases. But I'm wondering if there's another fundamental factor that may be playing a role. There's a book that I've been reading on the victimhood culture in America, and it's been written about at length in recent years, um, where, you know, a rise in kind of victimhood. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it a lot on college campuses and so forth. And... Uh, Jews, we don't make great victims. It's right. like we, it, it doesn't. Uh, it's not good for the Jews because Jews are seen as successful and and powerful, and certainly not a minority anymore because we're so integrated in society. I'm just wondering if this is something that we have no choice. That one of the side effects of this societal uh, trend is that it's Jews are going to pay a price in a way for their success. What do you think of that? I think we have to be concerned about intersectionality, where people feel that you can draw people who are pressed for different reasons together, and they're all going to band together because they all see themselves as an oppressed um, people. Yes, looking for oppressors. Right. And the Jew, especially because of Israel, there's something that, I don't know, for rightly or wrongly, that connects power with oppression especially if it's seen as, as white. Uh, and, you know, we just don't play well in, in, that, in that genre. And I think Israel is the epitome of a powerful country. We, you know, and we're seen as the oppressor. And it's almost leaking into the American Jewish community because we're successful and powerful, then maybe that leaks into oppression. Well, I mean, listen, Israel is a powerful country. 
Israel is is more powerful than the countries that are surrounding it, and we want it to be that way. We want Israel to be powerful because if they weren't powerful, oh, yeah. they'd be, they wouldn't they, be around. They'd be in jeopardy. And so you want that. You want the United States to be a strong ally of Israel because Israel doesn't have any better ally in the world than the United States. And the United States is powerful, and these things are, are true. But the conflict is not a simple black and white conflict. This is not like a powerful group oppressing another group. I mean, you know, we could talk for hours about what Israel does for minorities and how it's a comfortable place to be a minority in Israel and how they've gone out of their way even after tremendous, you know, suffering and bombings to um, try to make life better you know, for the Palestinians. I'm not, listen, I I believe in a two-state solution, and I think that that's, you know, the way forward, but there needs to be leadership on both sides. It's it's a very complex conflict that's been going on for over 100 years. Right. And and you can't can't make it black and white, because it's not. Right, and it's it's influenced the views of Jews in America. Right. You know, Um, but you said something about minorities in Israel. Maybe we can close the loop on that, because... Mm -hmm. Over the years, I've been to so many places in Israel that take care of uh, people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. I went to Shalva in Jerusalem. Right. I spent two hours with this kid. Couldn't see, mm-hmm. couldn't hear, couldn't talk. All he could do was touch with his fingers. Right. And they created a way of communicating with fingers, with touching. Right. So all day long, he has people who translate to him what I say. It was one of the most extraordinary moments of my life because mm. he wants to know what kind of car I'm driving. Right. And at the time, I was driving an Acura NSX. It was a sports car. And he's telling me he loves cars right. through fingers. Right. Right. It was really an extraordinary moment. And it turns out that his family helped create this center. Mm-hmm. But you see disability face-to-face, mm-hmm. and it's impossible not to be moved. And in a way, it almost shows the love of life. So we've, you know, I, I think that the, the disability movement is growing and, it, and, and it's being accepted. I mean, one of the things that we started in Israel, but now we're doing it in the U.S., is we created this um, program called Link 20, which is people with and without disabilities advocating for themselves. And, um, you know, because in the end of the day, I represent a very small family. But when you have thousands of people with disabilities and without disabilities advocating for their rights, you, you, you know, change happens. I'll give you two quick examples. We approached, or this group, Link20, um, approached major, major League Baseball and said you shouldn't use the term disabled list because mm-hmm. someone who has an injury in baseball and then you know, is better two weeks later is not permanently disabled. And they said, you know, you're right. And they changed it to the injured list. And that was thanks wow. to this group nice. called Link20. And the other thing that we approached the um, U.S. Olympic Committee. So people that get a gold, a civil, uh, silver, a bronze medal get paid a certain amount by the U.S. Olympic Committee. But Paralympians were getting pay- paid a fraction of that amount. And they brought the issue forward to them. And in the end, the U.S. Olympic Committee agreed on paying parity to Paralympians and, and Olympians in, in terms of their medal. So these are successes that have happened because of advocacy. And I think that for us, the, dis, the, the, the disabled community can be much more powerful the more numbers you can, you can get out there. Yeah, and you know, we live at a time where, <clears throat> you know, on college campuses, they've made an email on Halloween costumes, a microaggression mm-hmm. and so forth, where we've sort of, you know, honed in on these tiny, tiny aggressions. 
and somebody in a wheelchair who can't get around. I mean, that's a major, major issue. Right. There's nothing, there's no, there's no doubt about that. So right. uh, I want to invite you to send the stuff at the Jewish Journal, uh, Jay, you. anytime. If you have a, an article, a mission, and something that's happening in Hollywood that connects to this issue, uh, we'd love to, to publish it. And I want to thank you for coming into our studio. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having me.